Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Hi, um, everybody, and welcome. Um, I would like to thank Daisy for inviting me to speak today um, and the entire staff of the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh for their roles in bringing this exhibition together. The 17th century proto-ethnographer Martin Martin Oh. Martin Martin wrote that when people of the Isle of Lewis had a cough, quote, they drank brochen plentifully, which is oatmeal and water boiled together, to which they sometimes add butter. This drink, used at going to bed, disposeth one to sleep and sweat, and is very diuretic if it hath no salt in it. Here is a clear example uh, when food, in this case porridge, uh, was used as a treatment for an illness. And while Martin discussed rural parts of Scotland, most of Western Europe used items that today we would categorize exclusively as food to cure their ailments. My, my short talk today will be um, providing some discussion on the historical connections between food and medicine, um, concentrating on the 17th and 18th century, because that's where my research lies, um, what I call the early modern period, um, and will then turn its focus to Scotland and recipe books. So we begin, as mo most histories of Western European medicine, with Galen. Galen of Pergamum was a Greek physician who died in 200 BCE, but during the Renaissance, his work saw a resurgence um, along with other classical Greek texts. His theory espoused that the body consisted of four humors, black bile or melancholy, phlegm, yellow bile or collar, and blood. Throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, these humors became increasingly understood as fluids, um, which I say because some historians argue that Galen didn't understand them as such, but by the 17th century, um, these humors were very much understood as fluids. Um, and each person had a unique mix of these humors, uh, which could be indicated through the temperament of the person or even their skin. So for um, example, according to Nicholas Culpepper, a famous English writer of vernacular medical treatises in the 17th century, um, a person with a sanguine complexion um, was expected to be hairy with, quote, a redness intermingled with white in their cheeks, end quote. So the elevated blood humor in a sanguine complexion could be seen literally in the skin of the person's face. Um, these humors uh, were also endowed with certain properties, which you can also see um, in this diagram, um, hot, cold, wet, and dry. So phlegm, somebody who is phlegmatic, um, was composed of wet and colds, blood of wet and hot, yellow bile of the dry and hot, and black bile of the dry and cold. Illness resulted from an imbalance of these humors. And to rebalance them, practitioners used emetics, diuretics, and phlebotomy to expel the excess humors. Um, and these were all often harsh methods um, that left a patient weakened, especially upon repeated treatments. Um, according to Galenic theory as well, prevention of disease involved the six non-naturals, um, air, food and drink, sleep, exercise and rest, evacuations and obstructions, and passions. The non-naturals affected the body from the outside and could misalign the humors through a sudden change or simply just a disagreement with the, um, with the person's complexion. Even if a person um, did not understand them 
as the non-natural, so somebody who wasn't medically trained in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, it was known that these elements affected a person's ability to live a healthy, in this case, non-diseased life. Um, it does not take long for disturbed sleep, for example, to result in feeling run down no matter the historical period in question. Um, importantly for today's talk, Galenic theory endowed food, one of these non-naturals, uh, with the same property as the human, or, uh, humor. Sorry. Uh, if you are drinking red wine tonight, Galenic theory categorizes this as hot and moist, and the drink closest to blood, making it the most nourishing, um, more nourishing even more than white wine. Um, <laughs> your complexion also dictated the food that suited you best. So as you age, you become colder and drier. Um, and so you might have actually been, if you were older, you might have been prescribed red wine um, because it was hot and moist and would restore that balance. Um, ideas of food did not remain static throughout the early modern period. Um, the 18th century Scottish physician um, and honorary member of the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh, uh, George Cheney, Warned in his essay on uh, essay on health, or yes, health and long life, excuse me, published in 1724, that quote, wine has now become as common as water, and the better sort scarce ever dilute their food with any other liquor. And we see by daily experience that as natural causes will always produce their proper effects, their blood becomes inflamed with gout, stone, and rheumatism, raging fevers, pleurisies, smallpox, or measles. Their passions are enraged into quarrels, murder, and blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> their juices are dried up and their solids scorched and shriveled. Um, in other words, he did not recommend it for anyone. Um, <laughs> this is uh, instead, sorry, instead water alone um, is sufficient and effectual for all the purposes of human wants and drink. This is perhaps an extreme example, but hopefully illustrates the conversation among medical practitioners about food and drink at the time. Um, throughout the Renaissance and early modern periods, uh, Galenic theory waxed and waned in popularity, but these basic principles remained in medical education and the professional medical fields until at least uh, the late 18th century. Arguably, the non-naturals haven't really left us. Um, so the idea of food as essential to health uh, in both maintaining and restoring it has been entrenched in society and professional medicine for centuries. After that whistle-stop tour of the relationship between early modern medical theory and food, we will now turn to perhaps the most emblematic material item of this connection, the recipe book. Manuscript collections of household culinary and medical recipes were kept in bound notebooks of varying sizes. Often they were small, though, to enable easy access and quick referencing. The recipes themselves were usually written in several hands, indicating that these documents were collaborative, either across generations or uh, family networks. Recipe books from Scotland in my research date from the 17th and 18th centuries, um, and Scottish printed recipe books become increasingly common in the 18th century, but English printed recipe books um, had been available in the country since at least the 17th century, and they appear in inventories um, of Scottish libraries. While these collections often remain non anonymous, we can assume that British collections were written mostly by upper-class women. The collector needed to be able to read and write as well as have access to paper, a trifecta only really available to the wealthy. And as a wealthy person, the collector also um, would have had access to more spices from trade networks um, because they had more disposable income. Thus, some of the ingredients that we'll be seeing in the collections would not have been accessible to the lower classes. 
Uh, and in this period, a woman was proportionately more in charge of the care of the household than the man. So um, these are things just to keep in mind as we explore these sources. Um, these manuscript recipe books share a lot of features with modern cooking books. Um, they were often passed down through generations. So in this uh, inscription of her recipe book, Jean Weems, Countess of Sutherland, claimed that a portion of the recipe was collected and written by her mother, Annabelle Four. Um, so you can see this is the inscription behind me, um, and it says, this book was my mother's in which are many receipts, which she had from the most famous physicians that lived in her time. She died in November 1649, and then Jean Weems has um, signed it there with J.W. Sutherland. We also find gifts of recipes given between friends and family, um, which have led uh, the historian Elaine Leong to understand recipe collections as social ledgers. Um, so you look at a recipe book and see the um, connections that people have um, sort of within their social network. Um, and this example is a fairly rare example of a Scottish man writing a recipe in a large book. So every um, rule has its exception. Um, but this is from the recipe book of Archibald Campbell, Bishop of Aberdeen. Um, and it's for a recipe for the scurvy. He's written both one for an ointment for the scurvy and an ele uh, electuary, which is a sort of sweetened syrup. Um, and in this corner over here, um, he has written A.C. Archibald Campbell from the Lady Jedburgh, afterward Marchioness of Lothian. Um, and the Marchioness of Lothian was his paternal aunt, Jean Campbell, um, married to Robert Kerr, first Marquess of Lothian in 1661. So this is a clear indication of a, um, a case when somebody in the family has given him a recipe um, and he's sort of ticked it off to then return the favor at some point. Um, and in some ways, we can also see the early modern uh, recipe book as analogous to a modern medicine cabinet, so more of a just-in-case measure than an everyday necessity. We cannot automatically assume that the households who owned these collections used or made all of the recipes, um, but these collections can still tell us a lot about the medical concerns of the period, because why write the recipe on expensive paper unless there is some concern that it will be necessary in the future? And they can tell us how um, they would be treated if the patient were to suffer from the ailment. Um, so to some extent, the rest of this talk will um, discuss both with the focus on food. Um, before that, though, I do just briefly want to discuss the differences between um, Scottish and English recipe books. Um, during this period, there was an increasing cross-cultural communication. Um, the Union of the Crowns, when James VI took over the monarchy after the death of Elizabeth I, occurred in 1603, enticing many upper-class people to gravitate to London for at least part of the year. Um, and in 1707, the parliaments were united, meaning that arguably the upper-class spent more time south of the border than ever before, or at least had political interests there. So because the upper classes of Scotland and England are mingling, recipe collections from both countries share recipes. Um, and as we've already said, that English printed recipe collections have been evidenced in Scottish libraries. So there's already sort of a cross-cultural communication happening. Um, but there are some differences. Uh, for one, Scottish people were still speaking Scots, um, even if just employing Scots words among an English sentence. They were also using Scottish measurements, such as the choppin, which was at one point about half of a Scots pint, and a Scots pint was actually three imperial pints. 
and, the, and the Muchkin, which is about a quarter of a Scots pint. Um, and only the latter has really been evidenced in England and only in the northern parts. So thus, there were some fundamental differences, but we see that many of the same ailments appear in both Scottish and English recipe collections, um, even the same sort of recipes, um, sorry, ailments and recipes, which indicates that collections in the early modern period could be arguably considered British, but um, they might not have considered themselves as such. Um, so let's now take an example uh, from a recipe book to illustrate the connection between the food and medical treatment. This is from the recipe book of Christian Barclay, dated uh, to the early 18th century. Christian was the daughter of Robert Barclay of Uri, a famous Aberdonian Quaker and eventual absentee governor of East New Jersey. Um, so you can see this is Daffy's Elixir uh, Salutis, I'm sorry, my Latin's terrible, uh, the true receipt. Um, and Daffy's Elixir was a famous medicine, first appearing in the 17th century, um, but we it's sort of borderline quack medicine, but not quite. Um, looking at some of these ingredients, we can find familiar food items, which had medicinal uses in the early modern period. Most notable is rhubarb. Um, so right here, take one ounce of rhubarb sliced thin, uh, which was used as a gentle laxative. Um, it's also the main ingredient of Gregory's powder, which is in the exhibition. Um, Rhubarb was actually considered so gentle that it was given to children um, for its laxative benefits. Um, we can extend our assumption further that this recipe was meant to have lax a laxative effect because of the addition of two ounces of senna right after, um, which are still used in modern laxatives. But we can also see other more food items. Um, they, it includes carvey seed, which is caraway seed, um, aniseed, coriander, finkel, which is fennel. Um, it's, finkel is the Scots word for fennel. Um, parsley, and then we also have orange peel and raisins. Um, there's also saffron and licorice um, and other things like that. And actually the good thing about these um, is that they added uh, a good flavor as, as well as the uh, medical benefits. So some of these um, some of these ingredients would have probably been added because they tasted good um, to cover up the taste of other things that weren't so nice. Um, many recipes also have uh, food-related words within the title. Um, in the recipe collection of uh, Lady Grizel Bailey of Jerviswood, um, Jerviswood uh, is in the, in the borders, uh, there's a recipe for a soup for a consumption um, and I find this one really interesting because um, if you read the ingredients, uh, she's basically making a chicken soup, um, <laughs> which I think is really interest interesting considering her therapy for a bad cough um, is chicken soup, which is, it, it might be familiar to us because at least that's how my mother treated um, my bad colds when I was younger. Another food that was considered nourishing um, for those who suffered from colds and coughs, which we would not be per perhaps as familiar with today, was the caudal or posset, which is a drink of alcohol-curdled milk. Um, yeah, this food <laughs> was considered nourishing enough to be prescribed to new mothers. Um, it was actually in midwifery manuals that um, this sort of alcohol-curdled milk would be given to the mother as soon as they had given birth. Um, this one is also from Lady uh, Grizzle's collection. Um, 
And I think that this recipe is really interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that the direction, one of the directions is to make a coddle, um, which sort of means that the writer assumes that you actually know how to make one. Um, and two uh, is the addition of ambergris, um, which is that at the bottom there, um, which comes from the digestive tract of a sperm whale and is not a usual ingredient for, um, for coddles. Um, and it, it's not unusual for therapeutic medicine, but it is unusual for a coddle. Um, and actually, ambergris is now illegal in some places for animal welfare reasons. Um, so this last recipe indicates, the, uh, to some extent, the prevalence of digestive issues during the early modern period. Um, this one's also from Christian Barclay's recipe collections, um, another one for the gravel. Um, gravel was a catch-all term for stones of either the kidney or kidneys or the gallbladder. And the recipe includes pieces of salmon, so rands of salmon, there it is, rands of salmon um, being placed in a warm oven. This last aspect is also really interesting because it provides a rough time of day as well as a temperature. Um, bread would have been made first thing in the morning, um, and afterwards the oven would not be screaming hot, uh, but warm enough to dry out the salmon. Um, this is something that we don't usually get with early modern recipe um, recipes at all. They're usually just lists of ingredients and you have to sort of muddle your way through. Um, this recipe also includes the juice of uh, lemon, salad, or um, olive oil, and red wine. And gravel features many times within the recipe books I studied for my PhD thesis, um, as does the stone, which is a similar ailment, um, indicating that it was, it was a very widespread concern. The other digestive issue that occurs frequently in recipe collections are stomach worms. Um, it is not always clear if this problem refers to parasites or some other sort of stomach distress experienced, but it is likely at least that it was visualized by the medical practitioner and the patient as a parasite. Um, whatever they are, according to the medical practitioners in recipe books, they were often incident to children. Um, Historian Alan uh, Withy has pointed to improperly cooked meat as a likely cause for the transference of these parasites, which would have had a greater impact on children than the adults who ate the same meat. The fact that this ailment appears in recipe books indicates that this problem was not class-specific, or even um, and even upper-class people who employed cooks suffered from digestive or food preparation issues. Um, I don't really have time to go into digestion in much length, but this ailment hints at the difficulties of eating in the past. As the historian Ken Albala reminds us, past people suffered privation and malnutrition, and eating in the past should not be, quote, obscured by the intensely thick steam rising from the soup pot of nostalgia, end quote. <laughs> Um, to conclude, uh, Scottish recipe books show us the, the types of ailments concerning early modern people and the substances they chose to treat those ailments. In most medical therapeutic recipes, some form of what we now categorize as food, uh, as food was used. So food, drink, and health have been partnered for centuries. Um, and I will also leave you with a quote, <laughs> um, this one from George Cheney, again from his essay. Quote, to have our food that is our meat and drink as to quantity and quality duly regulated and precisely adjusted to our concoctive or digestive powers would be of the utmost consequence to health and long life. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.